Hello, my name is Dr. Paul Wheatley-Price. I'm a medical oncologist at the Ottawa Hospital and immediate past president of Lung Cancer Canada. Welcome to our podcast series called Lung Cancer Voices. In this series, I'll be interviewing patients, caregivers, healthcare professionals, and some of the leading lung cancer researchers in the country and indeed in the world to highlight important and relevant issues facing those affected by lung cancer. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome to this episode of Lung Cancer Voices, which is going to be our latest update from a major international lung cancer conference. And that is the World Conference on Lung Cancer, which just happened in Singapore uh, just after Labor Day, uh, September 2023. And it's an awful long way to go if you live in Ottawa. But my two guests also had long flights, but not quite as far. And they are friends of the podcast from uh, previous episodes. So I'm delighted to welcome uh, Dr. Cheryl Ho. Uh, Cheryl is a Lung Cancer Canada board member. She is an associate professor at uh, University of British Columbia, thoracic medical oncologist there in Vancouver. And uh, the conference that we were at was run by the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer. Their official journal, the Journal of Thoracic Oncology, uh, Dr. Ho is also an editorial board member. So um, very well versed to join us. And uh, secondly, uh, Dr. Jonathan Reese is a professor of medicine at UC Davis at, in Sacramento in Northern California. He's the medical director of the thoracic oncology program there. And Jonathan, if I remember correctly, I think you helped us with a sort of best of ASCO maybe a year or so ago from a previous podcast. Yeah, it was a great experience and, and glad to be back. Well, thank you. And thank you, Cheryl. It's good to have you both. I hope you've both recovered from your jet lag. We've been back, I guess, about a week now. For those who are not aware of the World Conference on Lung Cancer, it's it's an annual meeting. It's the largest academic meeting, which is solely dedicated to uh, the study of, of lung cancer. And there were thousands and thousands of us who uh, descended on Singapore. Uh, It was my first time in Singapore. It's pretty neat. Great food. We did get lost. I think Jonathan and I were both staying in the same hotel. And to get from there to the conference center should have been easy. But the Formula One Grand Prix was uh, being all set up. So everything was diverted. But it was a a great meeting. I think my, my highlight of the meeting outside of the science was was probably some some great restaurants. Cheryl and I had some great crab at one place, but the Singapore sling was, I thought was a little overrated and, and overpriced. Cheryl, did you have a... My um, highlight was seeing highlight. Paul wearing a crab bib while we had dinner at Jumbo Seafood Restaurant while we tried the infamous chili crab, which was, by the way, delicious, although I preferred the peppered crab. But uh, I have a nice big picture of Paul with his beer and crab bib on. It was very messy, and I, I didn't cover myself in glory of, uh, of, of, a, of a very delicate way to eat. I covered myself in crab juice and sauce. Um, Jonathan, did you, uh, you you told us earlier that you braved running in Singapore in the 32-degree heat and the humidity. I don't know if that was your highlight or whether you had some other things you enjoyed. Well, I had- I, I finished it off with some chili crab myself. Uh, I did not cover myself in glory either. Uh, it was it was tasty. I did not 
have the original Singapore sling. So, but it, now I feel better about that since you mentioned it was it was quite yeah. overrated. So yeah, it was but, good you know, to see. An interesting city it was great to see. Um, great to see colleagues and friends from around the world and and see some interesting sights and and well well worth the trip despite the distance. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It was well well worth the trip. Well, what we're going to talk about though, of course, is that we're not going to talk about chili crab uh, anymore. We're gonna we're gonna talk about lung cancer. And you know, because this is one of the premier conferences, a lot a lot of the newest research uh, gets presented there. And over the next sort of uh, 15 to 20 minutes, we're going to cover four topics. Cheryl has uh, picked two, and, and Jonathan's picked two, and so we're going to go through those and have a little discussion around them. And the way we're going to sequence that is the way that sort of lung cancer flows through through life. So first would be early detection or screening to detect lung cancer early, um, and then getting into uh, treatments which are established and a new combination or potential combination. Uh, and then Jonathan's going to get onto our third topic, which is maybe the new way, the next new wave of drugs that's coming. And then the fourth one, we're going to divert a little bit to talk about mesothelioma, so cancer of the lining of the lung, and a very important uh, surgical study that was uh, that was presented. So that's I've done enough talking for now. So Cheryl, I'm gonna I'm gonna pass it to you. And you you really wanted to talk about a lung cancer screening study that was happening in Taiwan, which yeah. really the whole world has been has been following closely. Well, I think it was just it was one of the plenary sessions. And so I thought really interesting for us to chat about, to think about how do you apply these things to our own our own populations. Dr. Huang was uh, the presenter and sort of filled us in on what was happening in Taiwan before they had about an eight year period of time where they kind of ran a screening trial for people who didn't fit our classic sort of characteristics, who people who were either light or never smokers, but then kind of looked at their background and said, okay, what other factors should we think about incorporating into our screening as risk factors? So things like family history, cooking over an open smoke fire, other types of exposures. So they, they initially ran this screening program and actually identified a number of people with cancer and found that the association was actually more with family history. So that then prompted the Taiwanese government to say, okay, well, let's focus on that group. We know we, you know, sort of getting a yield in there. So fantastically or amazingly, they accrued like 50,000 patients or uh, individuals to a screening program in Taiwan. So over like a one year uh, period of time. And the main factor was basically a family history of smoking. So they uh, incorporated people who are heavy smokers, who were sort of, you know, above age 50 with significant um, history of smoking, and then included individuals with a family history of lung cancer, again, focusing on sort of men and women above age 45, 50 uh, type of range to kind of look at what the outcome was in those populations. Essentially, the bottom line of that was actually that having a family history of smoking, and particularly if you had multiple family me members with a family history of smoking, Smoking. Sorry, Cheryl, it was a family history of lung cancer, wasn't it? Not a family history. Uh, sorry, of uh, my apologies. Family history uh, of lung cancer, you're absolutely right. But that, I actually, looking at that specific population, they, it was a successful maneuver to identify those patients without, with no history of smoking 
with lung cancer, which is great, right? Of course, we all know that implementation of screening results in a shift of people diagnosed with earlier stage lung cancer, so are better opportunities to actually cure people with their cancers. And ideally, that's sort of what we're all looking for. And I think we can see in our own communities, we've got, we're addressing a population that's at high risk, but then we also have this whole population of individuals who've never smoked or have a light history of smoking that are being identified with lung cancer. So how do we actually address that particular group? So Cheryl, just just before you carry on, sorry to interrupt, just to put this in a bit of a Canadian context at the moment, currently we do have lung cancer screening. We've had previous podcasts on lung cancer screening uh, Stephen Lamb and um, Ronell Myers from your from your center included, but it's not comprehensive across the country. Um, British Columbia, you have a program in parts of Ontario. We have a program. Nova Scotia has announced Alberta starting to do something. Quebec has a sort of small pilotish kind of program. But really, all of these screening uh, initiatives are detecting early stage lung cancers in people who have had a significant tobacco exposure. So that what you're trying, what you're very eloquently highlighting is this, the Taiwan study is adding a new population Correct. of people who have not been personally exposed to tobacco, but there's lung cancer in their family. So my question for you is, we've not considered really lung cancer to be a sort of hereditary condition. What is it, do you think, why, why are we finding, why are these people at risk? if they've got a family history. Do we know um, that? Or is good that- question. I think that was one of the, dis- the questions the discussant actually had, kind of highlighting that lung cancer, certainly in Taiwan, may differ from other populations. It's more predominantly in sort of women, adenocarcinomas, which may not reflect kind of the spectrum we see perhaps in North America or other countries. So there's one question about the biology In the biology piece, there's also this question about certain pathways or proteins being slightly different from population to population that could potentially influence that. So there are, I think, certainly unanswered questions about this whole hereditary piece. In other words, there's no hereditary cancer screening specifically for lung cancer because we don't know what those associations are. But certainly we know that this association with family history existed prior to this screening program, because we we know that if you have a family history of lung cancer that you shouldn't smoke, because that does increase your risk uh, for the potential for developing cancer. So we all live now in a very multicultural society, Ottawa's multicultural, but you two, Jonathan and Cheryl, you're on the West Coast where there is a higher immigrant population from East Asia, and do you think in Sacramento or in Vancouver that what you what's been seen in Taiwan might be replicated in your in your areas? And does the, is this do you think going to influence screening practices? What well, let's Van, Cheryl, why don't you carry on with Vancouver first, and then I'll ask Jonathan about in California. I mean, you know, our group, of course, you've mentioned Ronell Myers, Stephen Lamb, um, fantastic respirologists that we have here, are also interested in other factors that kind of play into things like exposure to air pollution and all those other kind of components as well, and actually are now launching 
a clinical trial looking at screening and never smokers. So trying to figure out or tease out in our North American population, how much can we translate that information from Taiwan, recognizing that multicultural piece and the different makeup that may exist in our province? I don't know, Jonathan, is that kind of something that's on the radar for you guys down in Sacramento? Yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, I think, I think you know, the, the Taiwan this Taiwan lung cancer screening study raised some really important things to think about. One is, as you mentioned, I I think the relevance and importance of family history and incorporating that into our future screening algorithms for who we screen for lung cancer. And, you know, of course, you know, in terms of the patients uh, in in Taiwan, you know, it's going to be enriched for patients with EGFR mutations, but of course, in many parts of Canada and in, in California, we have a high preponderance of patients of East Asian descent who are more at risk for having EGFR mutations. And I think that nucleated with family history. And to your point about air pollution, I mean, there was the Pivotal Nature study published this year that I thought was, you know, absolutely fascinating where, you know, EGFR mutations were even found at low levels in healthy tissue and kind of the carcinogenesis and the the adenocarcinoma promotion was related to air pollution and particularly the 2.5 micromolar or less uh, particulates. And so, you know, of course, with wildfire, you know, wildfires and everything that we're we're dealing with in Canada and Northern California, you know, how many patients are now at increased risk between family history, having this predisposition and then being exposed to air pollution. And that's something I think we need to be at the forefront of in terms of having screening protocols now to detect those patients who may be at higher risk for all those factors for developing lung cancer 10, 20 years down the road. I'd like to move on to our next topic, but I I think we can just, I I don't think I'm putting words in your mouth to say that this Taiwan study is, I think, going to prove to be very influential in the way that lung cancer screening develops away from purely a tobacco exposed population to broader populations based on family history and the pollution that you mentioned there that's the work of uh, Charles Swanton from from the UK and and that really uh, important paper that you mentioned that was published and maybe I should try and get him on the podcast because that was talking about lung adenocarcinoma promotion by by air pollutants so what are the non tobacco causes of lung cancer so that's terrific. But let's now we're going to move. We're going to shift gears a little bit. And Jonathan, I'm going to stick with you. And you you are going to talk about this study that we also all been anticipating from this meeting called Flora 2. So maybe before you get into the weeds of the study, could you just sort of set the scene of what Flora 2 kind of was, who, who it was for and the drugs involved? Absolutely. This study, Flora 2, looked at taking patients who had EGFR mutations and advanced metastatic non-small cell lung cancer, the most common EGFR mutations, exon 19 deletion and L858R. It represents about 15% of all non-small cell lung cancer, but as mentioned, in, enriched in, in patients who, who don't have a big smoking history, East Asian descent women, where in that population, in that group, it could be as high as 40, 50% or greater. And, and so it took patients and these patients and said, well, you know, the standard of care is osimertinib. And patients who in the FLORA study, aka FLORA1, patients were randomized to earlier generation EGFR TKIs or Lotnib or Jafitnib, 
versus osimertinib and first line treatment. And that showed about a nine month improvement in progression free survival and a bit over six month improvement in overall survival. It's the now considered the standard of care therapy for first line EGFR mutant lung cancer, those mutations in, in many parts of the world. Um, I'm just interested Canada, that, that is the standard of care now across and available in all provinces and territories in Canada. Awesome. So yeah, that's, so yeah, that's what we've been doing. Okay. Sorry. Back to you. Oh yeah. And, 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 and so, you know, you know, we, this is asking now, well, what if we add our standard first line chemotherapy for non-squamous, non-small cell lung cancer, um, which is the predominant histology of EGFR mutant lung cancer, carboplatin pemetrexid, does that help patients compared to osimertinib alone. Uh, this was the FLORA2 study. I would highlight that immunotherapy really, you know, these PD-1, PD-L1 drugs don't, you know, studied with chemotherapy and EGFR mutant lung cancer, you know, have really not shown benefit. So standard platinum doublet chemotherapy with osimertinib or without, patients were randomized one-to-one. -one. Primary endpoint was progression-free survival. They also looked at overall survival and a number of other kind of secondary endpoints on patient factors. And, you know, they they did meet their primary endpoint that it, they, there was a statistically significant benefit in progression-free survival in patients who got chemotherapy plus osimertinib compared to osimertinib alone, 25.5 um, months versus 16.7 months, hazard ratio 0.62, highly statistically significant. You know, it, it showed particularly there was a, it looked like the subset of patients who had CNS metastases who had at, at baseline uh, looked like they, they, the magnitude of benefit was slightly greater 24.9 months versus 13.8 months hazard ratio of 0.47. John, just to interject that, by the way, for people listening, so you can go back about five or six episodes in the podcast earlier this year, we, we did a podcast, which was. The title was all about EGFR lung cancer, this subtype that we're talking about. And that was when I spoke with uh, Dr. Dan Bredner from uh, London, Ontario. So that if you want to just set the scene, yeah, people could go back and, and listen to that one wh where we talked about osimertinib. And we probably talked about Flora 2 coming. What, what I want to get your sense from you, Jonathan, and then, and then we'll get Cheryl's input as well, is without kind of getting too much into the, like the specific numbers, You've explained the results there that people who got chemotherapy plus osimertinib had this longer progression-free survival than people who got osimertinib alone. And we just just recall what progression-free survival is the amount of time the cancer is controlled for. It's not someone's ultimate life expectancy, which is we call overall survival, and we don't know the results of that yet. So those differences were what did you say? It was about eight. Was it about eight months like, between the two? The addition of chemo. Uh, yeah, yeah, twenty-five point five versus sixteen point seven. So, so, so eight months, yeah, nine, eight or nine months. So the question is that I've got for you is the joy of osimertinib for us as clinicians treating lung cancer, and for patients maybe listening who are, who are on osimertinib, is for the vast majority, it's one pill a day with very few side effects, and many people can carry on living their life, you know, to the fullest of their ability. On that drug and they may be cautious about saying well do i really then want to do chemotherapy as well where it's intravenous and i've got to come in and out of the hospital and 
I might be more tired or I might feel sick. And, and so then what extra benefit would be reasonable to say, yes, I'll do chemo. I'll add chemo to, the, um, I'll turn my easy treatment into a harder treatment. What extra benefit do they need? And of course it's subjective, isn't it? So some people will say one thing and will be important for them and others would have a different threshold. But what do you think? When, when you're gonna sit down with, with, with your next EGFR patient, are you gonna say, look, I think having the additional sort of risk and chemo, you know, we could say, look, chemo is well tolerated. Yeah, it is worth it for that eight months. Or are you going to say, yeah, it's not enough? Yeah, that, that, Paul, that's the beating heart of the matter. So there was no trend. It's early for events, but no, no clear trend towards any type of overall survival benefit in terms of patients actually living longer. And they, and you know, oftentimes once patients are doing well and they could do well for years. Uh, on sing on single agent osimertinib to have them come in every three weeks for chemotherapy, the complications, the side effects, and it's not just the platinum pemetrexid for four cycles, but every three weeks with pemetrexid maintenance was done a part of the trial. I'm I'm waiting for more data. The 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 CNS patients with heavy bulk of CNS disease right. is something I may can I I would I would talk with a patient about it and kind of have a discussion in terms of their goals and values and what they want to do. That would be one patient. You know, I think the key is who are the bad actors? And I think we still need to identify who are the patients at risk of not progressing two, three years from now, but six months and from now, five months from now, who are those patients and can chemo add? So I would highlight how you at Memorial Sloan Kettering, for example, as a trial, we're hoping to open at UC Davis that's selecting to add chemotherapy based on persistence of circulating tumor DNA, failure to clear circulating tumor DNA. Right. We know from prior studies that that's a poor prognostic factor, kind of patients who have that detectable ctDNA on osimertinib in the plasma tend to progress sooner. So can chemo help there? Can they help with certain commutations like P53, where we know patients don't do as well? So, so the bottom line for me is patients, based on this data, heavy central nervous system metastases. Um, it'd be nice to see them do an analysis on tumor bulk, um, right. and, uh, but we don't have that data yet. Maybe the CNS METS is a surrogate for that. And then finding out more about the genomics and circulating tumor DNA and yeah. identifying the patients at risk. And those patients may benefit. The, the last episode we recorded of this was with uh, Natasha Leal, who's a long-term friend of the pod as well, where we talked about what happens with progression after osimertinib and one of the strategies, of course, to try to get ahead of it with something like this. But Cheryl, I sat down in Singapore with, after Flora 2, with a patient with EGFR positive lung cancer. And that was when I had my quite disappointing Singapore sling. They told me that for them, eight months was no way. They said, no way would I take chemo to delay things for eight months because of the way they had been able to live their life and the choices that they'd made as a family by being well controlled on one pill a day. Now in Vancouver, you have maybe the highest proportion of EGFR positive lung cancer patients in, in, the can in Canada. What, what do you think? Well, I guess to your point on on the comment from the patient, like Dr. Wu was a presenter that 
discussed that abstract and he had done a local poll in China of physicians and then and then patients and their families about what kind of benefit would they need to see to be willing to add that chemotherapy and the patient's comment was that it needed to be two years before they would add that in. So I think that definitely speaks to the, the quality of life piece. And I totally agree with Jonathan. It's it's the bad actors that you want, you know, where the cancer behavior is not. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna just sorry, editorialize for both of you. When you say bad actors, I mean the I, cancer. You mean you both mean the cancer, right? Yes. You don't mean the yeah, yep. good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, bad acting, the bad acting cancers. Bad acting cancers. Like those are the ones where you kind of like, you know, up front you start drugging, you don't get that great response. That's where I feel like, okay, for sure, these are the people who may benefit from, from adding that chemotherapy component. And I think the other piece is I'm I'm with Jonathan. I want to see more data. Because we remember if you start off with a 10 centimeter tumor, it gets down to one centimeter and then it grows by half a centimeter. Per the trial criteria, that's progression, right? As as what we would do by our standard uh, techniques of measuring things. And that's, of course, because we have to standardize measured in, measurement. Otherwise, how are we going to talk to each other across international trials? So there's also that component of is that progression as we have to measure it, the same as what clinical progression is, what it means in terms of where you would be talking to a patient about, you know, is it time to change therapy? So those are two different things. So I'm also waiting see what happens okay let's move along so we've covered the taiwanese screening study which may influence all around the world but we're waiting to see flora 2 addition of chemo to osimertinib certainly delays the progression of the cancer but we're left with the question is it enough now we're going to switch to a whole new topic and i and i feel like we probably end up we'll need to have a whole new podcast about ADCs or antibody drug conjugates. And so Jonathan, I'm going to give you the unenviable task of explaining in street language, what is an antibody drug conjugate? And what is this sort of tsunami of new drugs of this family that are coming out in lung cancer? Are they everything? Are they the do they back up the hype or is it just hype? But first, what are they? So all, all great questions. So, so antibody drug conjugates are uh, a, a newer way to deliver a chemotherapy payload. And so it's an antibody with the linker and a chemotherapy. And so the antibody binds to a protein on the cancer cell and delivers this chemotherapy payload. So I tell patients it's kind of like the warhead that then delivers the kind of payload bomb to the cancer cell. And so, you know, there are there are different antibody drug conjugates that bind to different proteins on the cell. You know, of course, you, you want a protein that's more expressed in the cancer cell than on regular cells. And so breast cancer has made a lot of advances looking at their, there's um Trastuzumab deruxtecan for HER2 uh, uh, breast cancer it was a plenary session for HER2 low breast, breast cancer at the American Society of Clinical Oncology last year. There's um, sasetumumab, trope 2 uh, ADC, you know, for breast cancer. And so we're bringing these to lung cancer and for HER2 mutated lung cancer, not to 
amp HER2 amplified, but mutated trastuzumab deruxtecan is a HER2 antibody drug conjugate that uh, delivers a payload, uh, chemotherapy payload, and has good response rates and activity and is approved for HER2 mutated non-small cell lung cancer. It's a lung cancer similar to EGFR, but like but occurs at a much uh, lower percentage. And so that's routinely used. And so a lot of excitement around these drugs is a better way to deliver chemotherapy. At WCLC this year, there was some exciting data with the HER3 antibody drug conjugate and the Herthena 01 study, lung 01 study that showed response rates of about 33% of about 30% median progression free survival of 5.5 months. And then some data with these trope 2. Uh, and other antibody drug conjugates, these other markers that showed promising response rates and activity, um, including uh, when given with immunotherapy. Some of these proteins you've been mentioning, HER3, uh, trope 2. So these are, just to make sure we're explaining this clearly, those are the, the proteins that are being targeted and the antibody component of the drug is is the truck that's driving to dock at that protein yeah. and then it's going to open its back doors and deliver the chemotherapy the payload directly to the cancer cell and so this obviously sounds intuitively like a smart thing to do to take the chemo to the cancer cell not to the rest of the body so while it to me uh, jonathan so i'm just going to be devil's advocate here for a second to me, while that intuitively sounds like a good thing to do, has anyone actually demonstrated that it, it is better than, than just giving a dose of intravenous chemotherapy? So in, in terms of comparing standard kind of your first line chemo to uh, ADC is not that I'm aware of in non-small cell lung cancer. So the trastuzumab deruxtecan study did show a, a progression-free, in HER2 mutated lung cancer, did show a, a progression-free survival. So the time of tumor growth, about nine months, response rate of about 50%. So if you, if you compare that to what kind of historically chemotherapy would give you, it compares quite nicely. Yeah. But the other, many of the other ADCs don't have a clear biomarker like a HER2 mutation and, and the either they have none or the biomarker development is still not entirely clear. And and those at least as single agents have not, although there are trials in progress, have not beaten kind of your like docetaxel and second line chemotherapy right. and so forth. So it's an open question that kind of that everybody's looking to answer. Yeah. I'm always a bit worried that they're going to cost a lot of money, these drugs. But so just just for if people are listening and they, they're uh, I'll just go, go through a little list of some of these drugs that you might hear. Uh, Trastuzumab, Derex, Tecan. Um, they're generally two words. The, there's another Patrichumab, Derex, Tecan. Datopotumab, Derex, Tecan. There's Sasetuzumab, Govit, Tecan. There's Telisatuzumab, Vidotin. A bunch of these in, in development. Cheryl, in Canada, we, I mean, none of these are approved yet in lung cancer. Maybe we'd like to see, maybe we'd like to see that. What, what, what do you think the future is in, in Canada? And are you involved with any of the research studies in Vancouver? 
So I, I think you you pointed out uh, totally, Paul, is that we have access predominantly through clinical trials, um, looking at these kind of compounds, figure out how do you actually employ them with lung cancer. The, the key piece, though, is that it is fantastic that it is more directed, but it is ultimately still chemotherapy. So, you know, we, we still have to be conscious of the side effects and, and of the chemotherapy part, but also that they have some other unique kind of side effects that, that can come along with them that are a little bit different than what we see with standard kinds of treatments. Uh, Dr. Leonard, Leonardo, I believe, was the discussant, and she kind of said, you know what, this is the kind of magic bullet we've been talking about for, for, for decades. And, and I think, you know, I, I, I think the concept of you know, directing our chemotherapy better is, is, is great. I think what we need to see, as Jonathan points out, we need to see in practice, right? Like, how does this work? Does it make things actually better for patients? Um, uh, you know, now that we've employing them, what does that side, of pro, profi, side effect profile look like in, you know, the broader population? So we got lots of questions to still answer, but I think exciting and, and lucky that we're able to participate in clinical trials, developing these agents. Right. A year or so ago, my colleague here in Ottawa, Dr. Garth Nicholas, also a friend of the podcast from a great Twitter series he did last year in Lung Cancer Awareness Month, he gave a presentation about lung cancer. He based his initial slide on a painting, a Japanese painting called Under the Wave of Kanagawa. So look up the painting, Under the Wave of Kanagawa. And it's quite familiar, actually. I think you'll, you'll look at it and you go, oh, yeah, you've seen that. And... Uh, in this Japanese painting, there's different waves, and, and if you have to look closely, there's, there's boats in there, and there's Mount Fuji in the background. And he described this painting analogous to waves of development in lung cancer, from chemotherapy, then the wave of targeted therapies like osimertinib, then the wave of immunotherapy, and you just wonder if antibody drug conduits are going to be are, are going to be the next wave. What I'm going to do is I'm going to take a little bit of uh, editorial license and I'm going to say we're going to stop the podcast at this point and we're going to have a second podcast to talk about the mesothelioma study, which is a topic in itself. So we're still going to have the same guests, Jonathan and, and uh, Cheryl, to talk about the Mars 2. But this will be part one of the Best of World Lung and uh, come back. Uh, we'll come, come back in about 10 seconds to do part two but you can listen to it when the second part is released shortly after the first one. If you have any questions about these first three uh, issues, then please do speak to your, uh, your friendly neighborhood uh, oncologist. Thanks to our producer, Ryan Mullen. Please send us your feedback, like and follow us on Facebook at LungCan, on Twitter at LungCancer underscore Can, and on Instagram at LungCancerCanada. For more information about lung cancer or to donate, volunteer or share your story, visit our webpage at lungcancercanada.ca.